Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. This week, we are kicking off our Holiday Book Club mini-series, which is how we on the 2AM Book Review Club podcast will be celebrating the holiday season during the month of December. I have two romances and two mysteries lined up for our holiday book club because not only are those two of my favorite go-to genres, I think that they are also genres that are particularly conducive to holiday-themed stories. If you're curious about which books I have picked out for our holiday book club, definitely check out the Holiday Book Club post that I have linked in the description. For now, however, I am just going to jump right in to our very first Holiday Book Club episode. And to kick off this mini-series, I decided that we would start out with one of our romances, the brand new holiday romance release, Wreck the Halls by Tessa Bailey. When I was looking around for which holiday books, which holiday new releases to include in our holiday book club mini-series, I was not surprised to see Tessa Bailey's new release, Wreck the Halls, come up often because she is a romance author who currently has a lot of hype. This is, however, only my second Tessa Bailey novel. I also read Hook, Line, and Sinker. And while that book didn't leave the deepest impression on me, I did enjoy it for what it was. And that's also kind of how I felt about this book, Wreck the Halls. But what drew me to this book, the reason I included it in our holiday book club, was the premise. I love celebrity romances. I recently read and enjoyed The Bodyguard by Catherine Center if you're looking for celebrity romance recommendations. And the premise of Wreck the Halls seemed to promise a celebrity romance with a bit of a twist. Let me read you the official description which I pulled from Wreck the Halls Storygraph page. Melody Gallard may be the daughter of music royalty, but her world is far from glamorous. She spends her days restoring old books and avoiding the limelight. One awkward tabloid photo was enough, thanks. But when a producer offers her a lot of money to reunite her mother's band on live TV, Mel begins to wonder if it's time to rattle the cage, shake up her quiet life, and see him again. The only other person who could wrangle the rock and roll divas. Beat Dawkins, the lead singer's son, is Melody's opposite. The camera loves him. He could charm the pants off anyone. And his mom 
is not a potential cult leader. Still, they might have been best friends, if not for the legendary feud that broke up the band. When they met as teenagers, Mel felt an instant spark, but it's nothing compared to the wild, intense attraction that builds as they embark on a madcap mission to convince their mothers to perform one last show. While dealing with rock star shenanigans, a 24-hour film crew, brawling Santas, and mobs of adoring fans, Mel starts to step out of her comfort zone. With Beat by her side, cheering her on, she's never felt so understood. But Christmas Eve is fast approaching, and a decades-old scandal is poised to wreck everything. The Steelbirds reunion, their relationships with their mothers, and their newfound love. So, as you can tell from the premise, I went into this book expecting to find a chaotic holiday rom-com, just a really fun romp. And I was actually a bit concerned that I might not have that much to talk about once I finished the book. But what I was not anticipating was how much Wreck the Halls talks about social media and internet culture and celebrity culture. And once I finished the book, I was like, actually, I do have plenty of thoughts. So let's get into them. But first, a couple of minor things. I do need to issue a minor spoiler alert, a minor spoiler warning. I will be talking about many aspects of the book, so although I won't be explicitly talking about any plot twists or major character arcs, there will probably still be spoilers in this episode. If you're interested in reading this book and you haven't yet done so, then definitely read Wreck the Halls first. So, spoiler alert, spoiler warning, you have been warned. The other thing I want to quickly bring up is the structure of the episode. I have somewhat mixed feelings on this book, Wreck the Halls. On a surface level, I did really enjoy the reading experience, but I don't really think that this book stands up to closer inspection very well. So here's what I'm going to do. I will structure this episode as a compliment sandwich. First, I'll offer some of my positive thoughts, then I'll get into my more critical thoughts, and then I will round out the episode with some more positive thoughts. Starting off with things I liked. The first thing I liked was, of course, the premise, the basic story of the book. Melody is the shy girl, Beat is the golden boy, she met him when they were teenagers, and she's never been able to forget him since. It's very Disney Channel original movie, but I still love it. And since this is part of our holiday book club, I should also note that I did think that this was a fun holiday read. There wasn't as much of a focus on the holiday aspect, but there's still snowball fights, parties, a festive 
lighthearted atmosphere hanging over the book. And I think my favorite holiday-related moment in the book is this quote. Another hour passed before they managed to extricate themselves from the bar, which they accomplished by Vance creating a diversion, aka juggling shot glasses, while Beat and Melody snuck out the rear entrance. By then, Melody's co-workers and Beat's friends were the kind of drunk where numbers were being exchanged and joint vacations were being planned. It was the good kind of drunk. The holiday drunk where the snowfall outside and the glow of lights on stoops and inside of shop windows makes everything surreal and trimmed with magic. Beat walked beside Melody on the sidewalk, his hands shoved into the pockets of his overcoat so he wouldn't reach for her hand, the voices of their friends carrying back through the winter wind like a memory in the making. This is the kind of tranquil, snowy moment that I always look for in holiday books, and I think that this is a particularly nice execution of this type of moment. I also think that there are some genuinely nice moments in the writing. Here's a few examples. Example number one is Beat thinking about Melody towards the end of the book when he's at that inevitable stage in a romance novel where he has to recognize her importance to him. Melody Gallard knew the floor plan of his soul. Example number two comes from um, a steamy scene between Beat and Melody and by the way, this is a Tessa Bailey book, so there is a heavy emphasis on the steam. Colors that hadn't been invented splashed on the backs of his eyelids, his mind in a state of total and complete nirvana over giving Melody pleasure. And then my final example is again from a steamy scene, and again, there are a lot of these in the book. She was matching him beat for beat. A perfect harmony. They were the greatest song ever written. And when he collapsed beside her and they locked together like two pieces from the same puzzle, one heart thundering against another, he planned on singing their song for the rest of his life. Is this moment cheesy? Yes, definitely. Did this moment still get to me? Yes, because these are the kinds of cheesy moments that I genuinely love in romance novels. And I really don't think that you can love or appreciate romance novels if you don't have somewhat of a tolerance level for cheesiness. But even though there are moments in the writing that I do appreciate, there are also moments that are too cheesy even for me. Like, for example, Beat has this line, There's no beat without a melody. Inevitable? Possibly yes, given the names, but still, ouch, the cringe. The writing can also be a bit clumsy, like this line, Beat's voice cut through the stale air like a violin string through cake. Not the most adept writing that I have ever come across. 
Also, I do have a quick writing craft lesson here for all of my aspiring writers, namely a lesson about flagging or tagging your own writing as especially lyrical or beautiful or just good. Sometimes it's fine, like in Divine Rivals by Rebecca Ross. So in that book, you have rival journalists Roman and Iris. It's a fantasy romance book that I really enjoyed. But something that stuck out to me about Divine Rivals was how often Roman and Iris remark on the quality and emotional power of each other's writing, which naturally raises the reader's expectations of the examples were given of these characters' writing. Personally, I didn't find Roman or Iris's writing to be anything extraordinary, but I recognize that maybe that's because my expectations were raised so high by the framing of the narrative. Similarly, in Wreck the Halls, there are several moments in the writing where the author is trying to frame it as something amazing and unfortunately, I really didn't agree. Here's my first example where Melody is having a conversation with her mother, former rock star Trina. For context, since leaving the band, Trina has been living in a hippie compound in the middle of nowhere. So, here's the dialogue. Don't get me wrong, Trina rushed to add, jabbing the air with her finger. I don't give a shit. I'm just stating the facts. Right. Trina definitely gave a shit. I don't care if they all condemn me for what they think happened. I'm happy. I'm up here living free in the giddy mountain air while she's down in New York in her gilded cage rolling around in phony frippery. Melody started to respond but found herself momentarily overcome. What? Trina spat, folding her arms over her chest. Nothing, Melody managed after a few moments. It's just that sometimes I forget you were the lyricist. That you're incredible with words. Um, phony frippery is certainly a memorable phrase, I'll give you that, but I'm not entirely sure that I would personally classify it as incredible. Maybe I'm missing something here, but it kind of misses the mark of incredible writing, at least by my standards. But if you think that's not great. Let me read you an excerpt from later on in this same conversation. Oh, kid, it's such a cliche. That's what ticks me off the most, you know? Trina faced her again, disgust evident in the brackets around her mouth. We swore from day one, we'll never be normal. We'll never be normal. But look what happened. A penis came between us. A human man. Not even a half-decent one. She appeared lost in thought for a beat. Maybe I'm the villain of her story, but I'm the hero of my own. I'm going to keep on being that for myself, if it's all right with the world. This woman, her mother, had no idea that every sentence out of her mouth was a hit song. God, God, 
It was so intimidating. Standing in that jail cell, Melody felt like a lackluster teenage girl again, without a single merit that could bring her worldwide fame. The talent hadn't been passed on to the next generation. It ended with Trina. Melody was just the quiet echo of something extraordinary. Let me, let me repeat a section of that for you. Maybe I am the villain of her story, but I'm the hero of my own. I'm going to keep on being that for myself, if it's all right with the world. <sighs> so I don't think that this is exactly the earth-shattering hit song that Melody seems to think it could be. It's again reminding me of Disney Channel original movies because... Those did have songs, and this is specifically giving me This Is Me from Camp Rock energy. This is real, this is me, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be kind of vibes. And that's fine, because again, cheesy Disney energy will always resonate with me, but it's a bit much to expect me to take it seriously as the product of a world-famous rock star. And the problem isn't the writing per se, but more so the fact that it keeps getting pointed out to the reader as good or memorable or strong writing. The writing lesson here, obviously, is that if you're going to frame your own writing in this way, within the narrative, then you need to put in the extra effort to make sure that that is actually what that writing is. In general, I do feel like it's best to avoid this kind of narrative framing. I do think it's best to just let your writing stand on its own merits and let your readers draw their own conclusions. So that is our mini writing workshop for this week. And as you may have noticed, we have started segueing into the criticism portion of this compliment sandwich, so let's complete that transition. I will be breaking the criticism portion of this episode down into themes and characters, and we are going to begin with themes. So, the biggest thematic element in this book, Wreck the Halls, is social media and celebrity culture and the ways in which those forces are shaped by and interact in our modern milieu. At the beginning of the book, B and Melody agree to do a reality show where they try to convince their mothers to put their band back together. But the twist is that this isn't a traditional reality TV show. It's a live stream on the studio's social media accounts. It's a bit of a confusing concept, if I'm being honest, since I thought that most live streams happen on Twitch and YouTube and not on Instagram or whatever, but that's fine. The point is, the live stream blows up and our protagonists have to navigate their newfound global fame. The first and most obvious thing I have to point out is that, quite frankly, this conceit of a live-streamed reality show exploding in popularity from the get-go, because this thing takes off almost immediately, well, that's a 
bit unrealistic. Live streaming out of all of the different content creation options you have on the internet, among those options, live streaming is notoriously difficult, even when you're already a popular content creator. Plenty of YouTubers or influencers or other internet savvy people have tried and failed to start a side hustle in live streaming. Most of the time, they just give up because it's so much work for so little reward. I get that the draw is supposed to be watching the young, attractive children of famous rock stars, but newsflash, there are plenty of young, attractive people on the internet, and most of the time, you can watch them in well-produced, bite-sized pieces of media rather than waiting around for something juicy to happen. I mean, that's why TikTok and YouTube shorts are such a big deal, right? People who get successful in live streaming are people with a very specific skill set, people who are exceptional at grabbing people's attention or people who other people have a reason to obsess over. The obscure children of long ago celebrities don't really fall into either category. Speaking of obscure children of celebrities and the ways in which internet discourse about the children of the rich and famous has evolved over the past couple of years, I was really surprised that the whole Nepo baby conversation never came up in this book. So if you have been paying attention to pop culture conversations online, especially in the past year or so, you have probably come across heated debate about Nepo babies or nepotism babies. The definition of Nepo babies has become a bit nebulous as the discourse has gotten increasingly convoluted and sometimes confusing, but at its core, the term Nepo baby refers to someone related to someone famous who then uses those connections to get ahead in life. You would think that this refers only to relatives of actors getting into acting, for example, but in actual examples of Nepo Baby discourse I've seen online, the term Nepo Baby is also used to refer to relatives of the famous starting businesses or side hustles or basically anything that requires attention and hype in order to be successful. So for example, someone like Hailey Bieber is often called a Nepo Baby, but her relatives are in acting, right? And she is also married to Justin Bieber, who is like a famous pop star. But hopefully you didn't need me to tell you that. Anyway, regardless, Hailey Bieber is neither a singer nor an actor. Her line of business is much more in like modeling and coming out with products, but she's still referred to as a Nepo baby, presumably because her connections and wealth have helped her get ahead in those businesses. Anyway, back to the book. In the context of Wreck the Halls and its universe, 
B and Melody are pretty low-key at the beginning of the book. They lead more or less normal lives and would not be considered Nepo babies. But once they start the reality show and start getting attention, then in real life, I feel like the Nepo baby accusations would start rolling in. People would be like, you're only getting this attention because of who your mothers are and the show would end up getting mean to death, I guarantee it. But even excluding the Nepo baby discourse, this level of popularity and fame that these two characters managed to amass over the course of the book would absolutely bring on an equally enormous backlash. Where are the old tweets? Where are the video clips of awkward interview responses that aged poorly? Where are the hate accounts? Where are the receipts? Where is the tea? I'm not saying that these additions would have necessarily improved the story, but not including these elements at all, pretending that these things don't exist, just feels off to anyone who spends any amount of time on the internet. It also contributes to the overall portrayal of social media as this benevolent, purely positive force that feels so saccharine and so oversimplistic to the point that by the time you get to the end of the book, it's frankly kind of annoying. And if you haven't read the book, let me give you a perfect encapsulation of why this depiction of social media feels so off. The nickname bestowed upon Melody by her legions of fans is Magnificent Melody. Let that sink in for just a moment. Her social media nickname is hashtag Magnificent Melody. As in, and I'm quoting verbatim from the book, it's her! It's Magnificent Melody! Is this a thing on the internet? Alliterative, overdramatic nicknames for minor celebrities slash internet personas? Is this a thing on some corner of the internet that I don't hang out on? Is my corner of the internet just too cynical and analytical? Please let me know. But I hope that this isn't a thing because it's just so cringy. And it's cringy partially because Melody herself has done absolutely nothing to earn this kind of adulation. From this kind of adoration, you would think she'd solved world hunger, but instead all she does is exist as a young, attractive person. And maybe this is secretly some kind of criticism or commentary on or parody of internet culture's worship of young, attractive people for no real reason, but I don't think so because this reads narratively as completely sincere, and that's why I cringed every single time Magnificent Melody was used in this book, which was honestly too many times. Once would have been bad enough, but it is used many times, and each time it grates on you worse than the last. Overall, there's no critique or commentary on the social media or celebrity themes, and there's also no depth to these themes. 
While I understand that the author didn't want these themes to be the focus of the story, I also think that if you include these themes, themes that are going to be so familiar to your audience, you should at least have some kind of passing acknowledgement that you could have chosen to address these themes with more depth, that there are more angles to these themes than you're depicting. However, despite the shallowness of these themes, I do want to say that I did appreciate that the author depicted the differences in the ways that the press treated Teenage Melody versus Teenage Beat. Teenage Beat was adored by the press, whereas Teenage Melody was relentlessly attacked. And one of the reasons Melody fell so hard for Beat as a teenager is because he defended her from the unfair press coverage. Here is the little speech that he gave to the press. I'm done talking. You won't get another word out of me. Not until you and all the similar outlets stop exploiting girls for clicks. Especially my friend, Melody Gallard. You praise me for nothing and disparage her no matter how hard she tries. You can fuck right off. Like I said, I'm done talking. That day, Melody hadn't come out of the bathroom until third period. She'd been so frozen in shock and gratitude. Just to be seen, just to have someone speak up on her behalf. That clip had been shared all over social media for weeks. It had started a conversation about how teenage girls were being portrayed by celebrity news outlets. Of course, their treatment of her didn't change overnight, but it slowly shifted. It lightened in degrees. Bad headlines started getting called out, shamed, and shockingly, her experience with the press got better. Not to keep bringing up Disney Channel, but apparently my hot take on Wreck the Halls is that it is a Disney Channel original movie in disguise. Anyway, this moment really resonated with me because it reminded me of the way that the press treated female Disney Channel stars versus male Disney Channel stars. And then everyone wonders why the Sprouse twins turned out so stable. Anyway, I appreciated that Wreck the Halls brought this up because that was a truly horrendous time to be a female Disney Channel star and also to be a fan of female Disney Channel stars. OG Miley Cyrus stands unite! Now let's move on to character criticisms. I'll get to our protagonists, Beat and Melody, in a minute, but first I just want to bring up a very petty criticism, which is that I hate, hate, hate the secondary romance in this book. In romance novels, it is not uncommon for there to be a secondary romance. The most common type of secondary romance involves the best friend character, which can work out really well. There's a historical romance book I'm thinking of in particular that I read years ago, so I don't remember the title, but in this book, the best friend's romance was so heartbreaking and sweet, and it was given enough page space that I essentially felt like I was getting a bonus romance. But in Wreck the Halls, the secondary romance happens between the reality show's producer, Danielle, and the cameraman, Joseph. <sighs> and the way that Joseph treats Danielle throughout the book is so unprofessional, 
And she's so clearly uncomfortable with his treatment that it's hard for me to believe that this is a relationship that we're supposed to root for. Let me give you an example of their interactions. And this example in particular just really rubs me the wrong way. Here's the excerpt. Danielle steepled her fingers as she spoke. In light of Trina's refusal yesterday, I spent some time last night outlining our next approach. For now, we're going to split up for the next two days. With all the attention we're getting, the network approved a second cameraman. They won't be as good as me, Joseph rumbled. Danielle's mouth twisted. Do you want me to hold your camera so you can stroke your ego with both hands? Joseph glared at the producer. Been doing more than enough stroking since I took this job. If looks could kill, he would have been dead. Of all people, you know we're alive. You brought it up. Danielle tipped her face up toward the ceiling. I love my new plan. I can't wait to split up. If you think I'm letting you film with another cameraman, baby, you're sorely mistaken. The producer was on the verge of arguing, but visibly swallowed her rejoinder. Is this supposed to be funny? Because I, I don't know about you guys, but personally, I don't find women being humiliated and belittled in their workplace environments to be funny. And I particularly dislike that it's a woman in power who is being undermined. I really do think that this subplot should have been caught from the book entirely because there's really no reason for it to be in the book. At least when it's the best friend character getting a romance arc, there's a reason for us as readers to care. But when it's a random side character getting a frankly distasteful romance, then I don't see the need to include it. But let's move on to frying bigger fish, i.e. the actual relationship at the heart of this book, which is the love story between B and Melody. You knew this was going to happen. You knew we were going to talk about the romance. So let's do this. This is, again, only my second Tessa Bailey book, but I think I'm beginning to see a pattern in her romances, which is that she's very focused on the steam, the heat between two attractive people, and the actual relationship often feels like it's taking a back seat. I see the chemistry between B and Melody, and it would be hard not to with steamy scenes happening basically every other chapter, but the actual emotional connection often feels kind of forced. Throughout the book, they keep emphasizing how they just get each other, but that doesn't feel like it's grounded in anything concrete except for their shared societal circumstances. Here's an excerpt. There was no comparison for the rush of gratitude he felt in that moment. He never experienced anything quite like it in his life. Not since the first time they met, at least. This woman sitting on the other side of his breakfast bar was the only person he knew who understood the weird shame that came along with being the offspring of a world-famous icon. Here's another excerpt in the same vein. He needed to keep his mouth shut, 
but stemming the flow of his words was next to impossible when the one person who'd lived through a parallel existence was sitting right across from him, looking into his eyes like she could see clear through them into his thoughts. And it's like, okay, sure, whatever. But that can't be the beginning and end of your connection, your relationship. Understanding each other doesn't necessarily lead to love or even friendship. And it's especially hard to recognize Beat and Melody's relationship as love when it seems to primarily be based on lust and obsession. The obsession thing isn't subtext, by the way. It's literally in the book. Here's a relevant excerpt. I hope it's not going to be a problem that I'm obsessed with you, Peach. Time seemed to suspend itself. Is it a problem that I'm obsessed with you too? And yes, Melody's nickname is Peach for reasons that I don't care to remember. Melody has been obsessed with Beat since she was a teenager because he's this media darling, this golden boy. And Beat becomes obsessed with Melody as an adult for reasons that are obscure to me but which leads him to refer to her like this. Here are some choice excerpts, starting with excerpt number one. Something about this woman magnetized and fascinated him, but surely he could refrain from asking her out long enough to have one conversation. Yeah, B, it would be really nice if you could figure out that something for us and report back. Please and thank you. Excerpt number two. Was this what it was like to be 100% willing to die for someone? Calm down. You've known her like a week at this point, tops. Excerpt number three. Are you trying to hurt me back? He demanded against her mouth. No, no, of course you wouldn't. Not my perfect melody. And excerpt number four. No one can stay mad at anyone for long on a snowy Christmas Eve. She isn't mad at me, he rasped, losing his breath just by thinking about her. She simply couldn't be with him. He'd been careless with the world's most priceless treasure, Melody's heart. And she didn't trust him with it anymore. <sighs> All right. <laughs> Now, maybe my issue here is just that my idea of romance and relationships is very different from what this book is perpetuating. But to me, relationships aren't about being idealized, worshipped, put on a pedestal. Because on some level, perceiving someone as perfect, priceless, etc. is objectifying. It's perceiving them as you want to perceive them rather than perceiving them as who they actually are. If I may quote Hannah Montana with all of this Disney Channel talk going on, nobody's perfect. This kind of idealization just doesn't feel authentic, particularly when you aren't backing it up with any kind of proof of a special out-of-this-world emotional connection, which really isn't what we see in this book. But beyond the way that this relationship is portrayed, the lack of authenticity also goes back to the issues that I have with the actual characters, Beat and Melody. And in particular, I feel like the character of Melody is a weak link in this relationship 
and in the book overall. So Melody is portrayed as this snarky, quirky, down-to-earth woman who is the daughter of a celebrity, sure, but she's also relatable. She's actually just like us. Now, I do think Melody would be a fun person to hang out with, but the ways in which the author tries to hammer home just how grounded Melody is, well, it's a bit excessive to the point of kind of being funny. Let me give you some examples. Excerpt number one. She'd been born into comfort. A nice townhouse, wonderful nannies, any material item she wanted, which had mainly turned out to be books and acne medication. Oh yes, she had an incredibly privileged upbringing, but you know she's just a normal person because all she actually wanted was books and acne medication. I'm sorry to break it to you, but just because she had understated wants, that doesn't erase her privilege. But put a pin in the idea of privilege, we will come back to that idea later in this episode. But first, excerpt number two. Melody wanted her bed. She wanted her flannel pajamas and her loofah and her secret fruit snacks drawer. She wanted to go home. When she'd agreed to wreck the halls, she decided to take the adventure as it came, not to worry over every little decision until she was blue in the face. She'd intended to shatter the walls of her comfort zone, stir everything up so it would land differently. She'd wanted a new okay, and she was feeling the consequences of being reckless now. Let me contextualize this for you. At this point in the story, Melody, the daughter of a famous rock star, has had sudden fame and riches basically fall into her lap. But you know she's still relatable because at the end of the day, all she wants is her flannel PJs and her fruit snacks. Let me guess, the fruit snacks are Welch's. No, not even Welch's. They're just a generic store brand. Allow me to pull out the world's tiniest violin while I weep for her sorrows. But the real problem with Melody is that on the one hand, she's portrayed as being completely grounded and ordinary, but then at the same time, she's presented as being so amazing that not only is B referring to her as perfect, priceless, flawless, a jewel beyond compare, but she's also blown up on social media as magnificent melody. Let me give you an idea of the level of adulation that we are talking about here. Here's an excerpt, and for context, B has just been watching her make a sandwich. After plating the snack, she settled it on the counter between them. I love watching you do... Jesus, everything, he said, his teeth sinking into the bread, chewing. I want to hate every single person watching your daily life on the live stream, but I understand the obsession. You move like everything you're doing is new, like you're experiencing it for the first time and want to get it right. Her sandwich was paused halfway to her mouth. Example? Like settling into a seat on the plane, studying the survival manual, 
figuring out what each button does, testing out five sitting positions until you find a comfortable one. I feel the need to point out that his compliment here is basically like, you act like you're an alien, you know that? You act like every single day is your first day on this earth and you have no idea what you're doing. And that's why I'm obsessed with you. Anyway, um, I'm sure you'll excuse me if I find all of this infatuation to be unearned, to say the least. If live streaming yourself getting on a plane and reading the survival manual was the key to having a significant chunk of the planet's population obsessed with your every move, then I'm pretty sure someone else would have cracked that code before now. Oh, and also, quick note for the author, acting like an alien, like it's your first day on this earth every single day, generally gets you made fun of not obsessed over. And also, like every good self-insert character, we also have to be hit over the head again and again with how she's beautiful but doesn't know it. And I'm sorry, but that only works in the iconic One Direction song. In a book, it's annoying at best and unbearably cringy at worst. Let me give you some examples. Excerpt 1. The woman was beautiful as hell, had been 14 years ago, and still was, in a softer, more polished way. But she hid that beauty well, underneath a wool skirt, huge-ass sweater, and thick-rimmed glasses. If he undressed her, if he tugged her long, golden-brown hair out of that bun, she would be the kind of hot that men noticed a hundred yards away. Guys, newsflash, it's 2004 again, and the main character needs to let her hair down so she can fulfill her character arc of becoming a beacon of male attention. <sighs> Excerpt number two, Melody started blushing, probably because he was staring at her like he was trying to count her eyelashes. Did she know how pretty she was? Clearly not. Clearly, she needs you, amen, to validate how pretty she is. So why don't you go do that for her, Beat? Oh, and here's my favorite excerpt. His jaw ached from grinding his teeth. You're too beautiful to hide backstage. First off, Beat, you should see a dentist about that grinding problem. Second, maybe she's backstage because she wants to be. Just because you're beautiful doesn't mean you have to sacrifice your privacy and your right to just be an individual out of the spotlight. Just because you're beautiful doesn't mean you owe the world a chance to praise you or dunk on you or often both at the same time. And most importantly, that's Melody's decision to make, not Beat's. Okay, so I've been a bit harsh on the love story and on Melody as a character, but I'm only being critical because I know Tessa Bailey can do better, as is evidenced in this very book. Melody only stands out as a poorly written character because she's brought into such sharp contrast with Beat, who has his cringy moments, but 
he does actually have some level of depth and is a genuinely interesting take on the rich and famous golden boy archetype. And in particular, I like the way that Beat's sexual preferences are discussed and explored throughout the book. It is a bit reminiscent of Fifty Shades of Grey, but I think it's better handled in Wreck the Halls because Beat's kink doesn't magically go away after he's emotionally healed. His kink is still considered valid outside of the context of the specific trauma that it's rooted in. Here's a quote. Was Melody right? Could he still enjoy being denied? In a healthy way? It had never felt like this before. Healthy, solely in the name of pleasure, because of the person he was sharing it with. There was no heaviness in his chest, or guilt, or shame. Only decadence. Only love and connection and melody. Always melody. Also, some of my favorite writing in the book comes from Beat's most important character arc, where he deals with being blackmailed over a family secret. I think the resolution to this arc has real emotional resonance, and it's also a nice spin on the trope of romance protagonists wanting to please their parents. There are things that I don't like about Beat's character. His self-flagellation over his privileged upbringing is a bit excessive, especially when Melody never has to confront her equally privileged upbringing. But overall, I did think he was one of the more layered and interesting male romance protagonists that I've come across in a while. So, those are my thoughts on Wreck the Halls. I know I got a bit critical in this episode, possibly a bit too critical, because I was having fun, honestly. But overall, I did think it was a fun holiday romance, even if it did get a bit silly and superficial at times. And if you're reading along with our holiday book club, then I hope you enjoyed this book as well. And that's going to be everything for this week. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me, and I will be back next week at 2AM with the next episode of our Holiday Book Club. Until then, have a great week, and happy book travels. (laughs) 